Philippians chapter 3 and at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Looking at that verse in the context, as we find it there towards the end of this chapter, contrasting with the previous verses immediately before it, as we'll see. The Lord's return is as basic and as foundational a truth as his cross, his death on the cross. In the New Testament, you'll find that the Lord's return is regularly mentioned and spoken about and anticipated as something that is essential in the way in which the church understands the Christian faith, in which we ourselves participate in that life of faith in Christ. And indeed, the cross of Christ demands his return because as he came into this world and lived in this world all the way through until he left this world and ascended to heaven, he was not seen in terms of his essential glory as the Son of God. He had come into this world to live in it as a servant, the servant of the Father, to experience humiliation and suffering and ultimately death on the cross. And that cross demanded not only his resurrection from the dead, because the cross is the completion of his work of atonement, uh, the work that God provided as an answer to our human sin, so as to provide a means by which we be saved from our sins. It demanded that he be raised from the dead, which is what happened, but it also demands his return in splendor and in kingship to complete that particular part of uh, his own exaltation. Remember the, the catechisms which are so useful, the shorter catechism so useful for a summary of the essential teaching of the Bible and in regard to the Lord and his person and his work. Catechism 28 asks the question, where does the exaltation of Christ consist? What does it consist of? And you remember that it, it has four elements to it. It consists firstly in his resurrection from the dead, secondly in his ascension to heaven, thirdly in his seating, his being seated at the right hand of God, and fourthly in his coming to judge the world on the last day. In other words, when you take these four elements of Christ's exaltation, you can see that it's not quite yet completed. Although he's now in glory, and he's seated at God's right hand. He's on the throne of the universe. There's this, this final uh, element, this final aspect of his exaltation awaits completion. It's his return to this world. His coming as the judge of all the earth to carry out what God the Father has given him to carry out as the judge at that last day. In other words, to deny the resurrection to deny the return of the Lord is really uh, equivalent to a failure to appreciate the cross, to appreciate his death and what it is and what it's about. And indeed, it's a failure to appreciate God's approval of that death as providing the basis for our redemption. 
So all of that really comes together in what we think of of salvation as revealed to us in the Bible. But all of that also, and his second coming as we're looking at it tonight from these verses, also has a very close bearing on our present life, and especially on the present Christian life, um, our Lord's of interest to everybody, whether Christians or otherwise, that Christ is in fact coming back to this world and coming back as the judge of every human being. It has a bearing on our present conduct. You can see that from this chapter itself, where Paul is saying that he, where he once sought approval from God for what he saw as his perfect obedience to the law, now he considers that to be worthless compared to what he finds in Christ, what he came to see in Christ, the righteousness that is in Jesus himself that became his when he placed his trust by faith in Christ. That righteousness was put on his record. Now that's what he's saying he has uh, his confidence in. And now he's saying, I've not yet reached the end for which Christ took hold of me. Thinking back to the time that he came to um, meet with Christ on the way to Damascus. He's talking about Jesus as someone taking hold of his life. What he's saying there in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ has made me his own, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but I'm pressing on, he says, towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's pressing on towards heaven. That's the end for which Christ took hold of him and changed him and turned him around and converted him. That's the end that Jesus had in view. And while he's in this life, Paul is pressing on towards that mark, towards that end, towards that destiny. That's where we find him speaking there about uh, those who are walking like himself. And uh, he's uh, uh, advising or counseling the Philippians to mark these people who are themselves examples of a Christian life presently awaiting the return of the Lord. So that's really where we're picking up um, the teaching in the chapter from these verses near the end of the chapter, especially verses 20 and 21. Two things that are mentioned there. First of all, Christians are citizens of heaven. And secondly, they are citizens awaiting the king's return. He mentions, first of all, they are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now you notice the but, beginning the verse, but our citizenship is in heaven. So as very often you find in the Bible, it presents its teaching to us by way of contrast, by way of marking out the differences between one thing and another. And here, the differences between those that Paul, and you notice he's writing this weeping, the tears are falling from his eyes as he writes these. They're, they're very uh, difficult things for him to write. And that, of course, reminds us of how we ourselves ought to try and seek from God the kind of heart and sympathy that goes out towards who are, those who are still lost, and especially those who are clearly showing themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. And you're very familiar with that in the world in which we live. Well, this is what Paul is saying. Many, he says in verse 18, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he brings out the contrast between them and those Philippian Christians that he's writing to and indeed himself as well. Well, he says, their end is destruction. 
Whereas the end for these Christians is glory with Jesus. Glory in heaven for which they already have citizenship. That's the contrast, he says. The end of these people, the enemies of the cross, is destruction. Whereas our end, our final abode is in glory with Jesus. And he goes on then to speak of their God is their belly. Whereas, of course, the God of the Christians is the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he says is these enemies of the cross, they're just living by their sinful, by their bodily appetites, by the things of the flesh, not just bodily appetites, but the things of a, a sinful spiritual appetite as well, the lusts of the flesh. That's what marks them, but he says um, the, their God is their belly, but our God is this God of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation and all that uh, that entails. And then he goes on to speak of they glory in their shame, whereas our glory is the transformation of our lowly body to be like the glorious body of Jesus himself. What he's saying is they're not just enemies of the cross. They show their enmity, their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They worship these bodily, fleshly appetites and they glory in their shame. They have their glory in their shame. They boast in their shame. They take pride, and I'm using the word advisedly, in their shame. You live in a world where people shamelessly and boldly flaunt their sinful lifestyles and where that is a challenge to God, to his truth, to the Bible, to Christians, to the teaching of the church where it's faithful to the gospel. Well, he says these are the kind of people that we know are around us, he says. That's true of Paul's day. Nothing is new. There's nothing new under the sun. These people are enemies of the cross of Christ, he's saying, in their present mindset. We want them to be saved and to come to know the truth and to come to have their lives changed as Paul's own life was changed, as our life was changed. But he says presently they glory in their shame. They mind earthly things. Their mind is firmly earth on the things of this world. It doesn't go beyond this world. There's nothing beyond this world for them. Nothing of heaven, nothing of eternity, nothing of these things that are unseen and spiritual. They are firmly anchored and earthed in their lifestyles. And you know what that looks like. You've seen it through the streets of Stornoway itself. Pity these people, pray for these people. They have problems that need our prayers, that need support, that need guidance, that need all of the things that Christ Himself charges us to show them in love, but at the same time distancing ourselves from the kind of lifestyle that is at enmity with God, where God is their belly, where they glory in their shame, where their mind is set on earthly things. Friends, we constantly are hearing of that in our, uh, on social media, in our news items. It's the world we live in. It's the world Paul lived in. It's the environment in which we face these challenges as Christians. We must never react in a way that's uh, untrue to Christ. We must never react in a loveless way either. These people need to be loved Loved in the way that Jesus has loved us. And we would, see, we would seek to love Christ in return. 
And there's that clear contrast where he's talking about Christians being citizens of heaven. They are so, they are so now, but they're living in a very difficult, in a very hostile environment. They're living in the midst of people who live a very different, indeed a very opposite lifestyle to that. But he says, uh, secondly, as citizens of heaven, they have a clear sense of belonging, these Christians. And Paul himself is saying, but, he says, in contrast, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior. It's uh, a Savior, but it means something very definite. It's the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our, our lowly body. Well, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. That's a wonderful phrase. When you look at the electoral roll, when a time for um, general election comes around, or any election, there's an electoral roll from which names are produced so that you have given the privilege of voting when your name appears on that list. Or even as a citizen of this country, um, you have your name on the citizenship lists or rolls that are held centrally wherever they are in this country. You're a, citizens of, a citizen of this country or whatever country, but your name appears somewhere which register you, registers you as a citizen and you have a passport um, or you can have a passport that shows you're genuinely a citizen of this or whatever country you belong to. Well, Paul is saying to these people, we are citizens of heaven. We have passports stamped by the Lord himself spiritually in our hearts and our possessions. We are currently, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you see, he's writing here to Philippians. This was an important Roman colony. The city of Philippi was one of the chief cities in the Roman Empire at this time as Paul wrote to these Christians in Philippi and the church that was established in Philippi surrounded as it was with all of that paganism and all of that idolatry and everything that he mentions there of the enmity that's shown to the cross of Christ nevertheless in that these Christians already have citizenship of heaven and what he's saying is um, you can think of the Philippians as they lived and were born and brought up in Philippi. If you would ask them, um, where do you live? We live in Philippi. Uh, where do you work? We work in Philippi. Where are your relatives? Well, most of them are in Philippi. But where is your citizenship recorded? They would say, it's not in Philippi, it's in Rome. It's in the capital city of the empire, where their names would be on the citizenship role of the empire itself. Paul is saying, that's what it's like spiritually as well. You're presently in this world. You're presently going through the experiences of this life. But your citizenship is in heaven. You don't belong to the world you're traveling through. You don't belong to the world. Your passport, as you look at it spiritually speaking, as you are in Christ, as your trust is in Christ, as you look at that spiritual passport, it tells you you don't belong to this world. You don't have your home in this world. Your citizenship is somewhere else. Somewhere far more glorious. You're a citizen of heaven. That's where you belong. And uh, that's something really of inestimable privilege. You know, that comes, it comes, I'm just saying this in passing, but it's important, it comes with our adoption by God into his family. Remember uh, John in uh, the opening chapter of his gospel, First John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, he talks about that Jesus came to his own people, the Jewish people, 
and his own received him not. They rejected him as the Messiah. We pray that the Jewish people will come yet to acknowledge him. Indeed, the Bible gives us the insight that uh, anticipates that the Jews will come to see him as their Messiah one day. Meantime, they rejected him. We have no king but Caesar, was their outcry. And as that is the case, John writes, But to as many as received him, to them he gave authority to become the children of God. Sometimes it's translated the power to become children of God. The word used can mean power. It also means authority. And in that context, that's surely how it's best. Who, those who received him. Those who received Jesus, who've come to accept him, who've come to place their trust and faith in him, what has God given them? He's given them the right to be his children. He's not just made them his children. He's given them the right to be his children. Somebody challenges you as a Christian. What gives you the right to think of yourself as a child of God, as a son of God, as a daughter of God? And you point them to the scripture and say, God has given me this right. It comes to me along with Jesus himself. Along with trusting in Christ comes the right to his inheritance, to that sonship that makes me a citizen of heaven. Do you have that? Look into your heart. Look into your mind. Can you see your passport stamped by Christ? You are a child of heaven. You belong to that city of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't matter how weak your faith at times may be. It doesn't matter how much you need to come back to God again and again tonight as a Christian with a sense of failure, with something that you need to confess again to God. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it may trouble you, as it does myself, that you have to come back so often with the same kind of things to confess to God that we've again fallen short, that we've sinned against Him, that we're nothing like what we should be, that we fail to learn so frequently even though Jesus teaches us that we fail to actually learn from the experience of life itself, but God will actually always point you as a Christian, as a person who trusts in Christ to say, yes, all of that is true, but your citizenship is intact. It's still there. It will never be taken from you. That doesn't encourage us to sin. It doesn't encourage us to be anything other than pursuing holiness and being like Paul here. I am I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But this is our privilege. We are citizens of heaven. And that citizenship is yours tonight. It's there if you are indeed a Christian. If Christ is yours, this citizenship is yours. If you haven't yet come to accept Christ as your own personal Savior, if you haven't yet received him, to use John's words, well, God places it on our heart as preachers of the gospel to urge you. Not in our own name, not for our own sake, but in Christ's name and for his sake, close in with Jesus accept him if you haven't already done so because without him you can't be a citizen of heaven 
And without being a citizen of heaven, you will never be an occupant of heaven. The two things go together, the citizenship and the occupancy. And that was one of Paul's great comforts as he wrote to the, the, the Roman church in chapter 8, that wonderful wonderful chapter of, of Romans, Romans chapter 8, where he says that um, uh, where the Spirit of God within God's people testifies to them being the sons of God. And he says, if sons, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. You see that wonderful combination. You are joined to Christ. You're joined to heaven. You're in Christ. You have a citizenship of heaven. And you look beyond this present life. Until you present your passport at heaven's gates. And God will say, yes, that's genuine. In you go. It's all yours. Enjoy it. So their citizenship of heaven. Make that your privilege. Make that your comfort. Make that tonight your great priority if it's not already yours. Because it's for your comfort, for your holiness, for your progress in the Christian life. And ultimately for your security throughout eternity. Citizens of heaven. But secondly, citizens awaiting the king's return. He's saying here, uh, we are citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are two things in that and then thirdly, the first verse of the next chapter. Let me just very briefly refer to these. First of all, there's anticipation and secondly, there's transformation. Thirdly, there's exhortation. The anticipation, he says, we eagerly await the meaning of the word is more than just await it's not something passive it's not something that's without a lot of energy built into it he's saying we eagerly await a saviour he's got an eager longing now that he's actually away from home now that he's not at home yet he's got an eager longing to be at home and he's waiting for this return of Jesus the king to take him home so that that will be his final abode his resting place now you notice the first thing that he says here about this eager longing this anticipation from it we await the saviour the Lord Jesus Christ before he goes on to speak about anything else before he goes on to speak about being made like him being transformed into the likeness of his glorious body all of that he's saying we are awaiting himself we're awaiting the king himself that's really what dominates his thought. What dominates his horizon as he looks towards heaven. As he looks towards this final glorious destiny that belongs to him and to God's people. This above everything else is what fills his mind. What fills his hope. What fills his anticipation. We are eagerly awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's telling and it's important that he gives him his whole title. Because this is who is coming. Himself in his fullness. The Lord Jesus Christ the Savior. That great title there that Paul gives very deliberately. Because he's saying this is what we're waiting for. This is who we're waiting for. This Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see Paul has said earlier. 
that he's really in a state of tension between leaving this world presently and going to be with Christ and actually waiting for a while or being left for a while to actually be of some benefit still to the Philippians and to other Christians that, uh, that he has leadership in regard to. Well, he's saying that uh, in, in chapter 1 there that he's uh, actually anticipating um, the, the death that is going to be his. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Well, I envy this man. We envy this man hugely. Why? Because he's having a difficulty choosing between serving Christ in this world and going to be with Christ in the next. He's got no doubt that leaving this world and being with Christ is far better. But such is his high view of serving Christ that he's here conscious of a tension between the two. My desire is to depart, but to remain is more necessary for you, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. If only I had, and you had something of that incredibly high sense of serving Christ that he had, that makes it always, almost equivalent to going to be with Christ in the next world. That's how he sees what it means to be a Christian. What it means to serve Jesus in this world. Let's seek all of us who are Christians today to work more towards that great view that Paul had of himself and of Christian service. What a huge privilege it is. What a great way of stating it as he's put it there. Now that's just by the way again. But um, that's what he said there. But now he's talking chapter 3 about the return of Jesus. Yes, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. But this is even better still. The fact that Jesus is coming back, that the King is going to appear in his glory, that, he says, is what we're eagerly longing for, eagerly awaiting, eagerly anticipating. He is coming as the judge. It's as the judge that he will come as the saviour of his people, because it's going to mean that the saved will be declared righteous by him. The unsaved will be declared unrighteous. The saved and being declared righteous by him, that's his verdict, that's what he actually states over them. They will then be invited to share with him, to come into glory, to be forever with him. The unsaved, the unrighteous, will hear a very different verdict. Depart from me into everlasting fire a great contrast again the greatest of all the contrast between the saved and yet sadly many as you know in this life are oblivious to this and indeed would deny such a thing as going to happen as the return of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus or the validity or importance of the death of Jesus and throw in your face when you tell them that these things are actually real well, you know what it's like when um, you see you're are in a court, a courtroom, and you're waiting for the judge or the sheriff to appear, especially if it's a major occasion, 
an important case. There's all kinds of small talk. People are free to share and speak to each other in conversation as they're sitting in the courtroom waiting for the door to enter, waiting for the door to open and the judge to enter. And as soon as the judge enters, you hear the words, All rise! And that's the end of the small talk. The judge has come. He's taking his seat or her seat. All the small talk is ended. Now you have to listen to the judge. You have to listen to the rules of the court, to what the judge has to say. Well, there's such a lot of bold, small talk, isn't there, in our world? Ridiculing of the Christian position, denouncing of the Bible, denouncing of Christians for their stand for, for truth. Small talk. Blasphemous small talk. Small talk that's so anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Gospel, anti-Church. There's a day coming when the small talk will be silenced. When the judge enters the room, then every eye shall see him. And every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Chapter 2 of this same letter, that's what it's saying. That's what's coming. That's where the small talk ends. And there'll be no boldness on that day to be blasphemous against God. The small talk will end. The king has arrived. The judge takes his seat. There's anticipation. There's secondary transformation. He talks here, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. There's so much theology into that. We obviously haven't got time to go into it fully this evening. But really what he's saying is, the body that we know of presently, this lowly body, and he's talking here about a body subject to death and to decay, which is what happens when we die. And if we die before Christ returns, that's what's going to happen. As we're very familiar with death, we're very familiar with funerals, with burials. But he's saying he's coming and he's going to transform our lowly body, the body that is subject to death just now. He's going to transform it to be like his glorious body. What is his glorious body like? Well, who can say? We'll have to wait till we see it. But it's, uh, it's perfectly um, obvious and it's perfectly simple to say at the moment, his glorious body is the body that's now utterly victorious over death. There is no such thing as death anymore to come near Jesus in terms of his human nature, his body, his soul. He's beyond that. And that's certainly one feature among many of being made like to his glorious body. Because that's the transformation that takes place, isn't it? Now, uh, we're very obviously, as we said earlier, conscious of the world in which we live. But for the Christian, there is only one trans, transformation. Transformation from what we presently are to what we will ultimately be in the likeness of Christ. That's where every flaw is removed. Whatever it will be, it will certainly be this. It will be exactly as the Creator designed us to be. 
There'll be no flaws. There'll be no uh, death. There'll be no sin. There'll be no pain. There'll be no sorrow. All of that will be done away with. All of that will be will be replaced by righteousness, by holiness, by a perfect likeness to Christ. It's so much so that even God will not improve upon the glorious body of God's people in heaven. When he says glorious body, of course, he doesn't mean that it's a merely physical thing. He means our human nature, our human person we're going to be changed inwardly and physically to the likeness of Jesus and how is he going to do this well by the power that enables him to subject even to subject all things to himself and quite literally we can translate that it's by the energy of his ability I think that's one way we can translate it just to try and captured in a few words what he says here it's by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself you see the king that's coming is not just a king in terms of his glory and his grandeur and his appearance but with limited powers the king that's coming is the one that's able to subject all things to himself he's coming to actually bring about this great change as he comes to take his people to be made like himself by the energy of his ability energy of his ability that's what's working in your life tonight as a Christian the energy of Christ's ability that's what you have as your great privilege as a Christian in your soul by the spirit of God it's Christ himself it's God himself working in you preparing you, leading you, guiding you teaching you, cleansing you all of that is going on through this present life and as he comes himself finally and the resurrection from the dead will take place at his coming he's going to place his people finally in their bodies as well as everything else in the likeness of his glorious body and he's doing it by the energy of his ability what a great thing to have working in your life the energy of Christ's ability almost indescribably great because there are no limits to that energy it's the energy of God it's the energy that actually died the death of the cross it's the energy that rose from the dead triumphantly three days afterwards it's the energy displayed in Christ being exalted to glory and it's the energy that will be displayed finally in bringing his people up from the dead and making them like himself in his glorified body. The energy of his ability. Well what else would you want working in your life. Short of the energy of Christ's ability. Is that your tonight? Have you come to experience. The power of Christ. The power of changing you from what you were to what you are. When he changes you and makes you a follower of his, a disciple, a saved person. Because as we saw already, everything about the unsaved life contrasts with that of the saved. And here is Paul expressing the Christian's hope. It's a hope not based on something that 
is just going to turn out not to be true after all. That's what you're told by those in the world who are enemies of the cross of Christ. We just believe in fairy stories. There's no basis to them. There's no foundation to them. Well, there is if you believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And if you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, which we are convinced it is, because God has come to persuade us of it by His Spirit, by His Spirit, then that's where you take your teaching from. That's where your hope um, is fed from these promises, from these great truths of the Word of God. And that's what fills your anticipation, your transformation. And he finishes with ex- exhortation. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's because everything in verses 21, 20 and 21 is true, is reality, is in, indeed fact. That's why I can come to say therefore. Continue to serve the Lord, standing firm in the Lord against all that surrounds you opposed to that. Because you know these things to be true, that's your great incentive. One aspect of your incentive to go on serving Jesus and pressing on, as Paul says, towards the mark. I'm going to finish by reading from Matthew's Gospel teaching of Jesus himself in regard to his arrival, his coming again to this world. Chapter 25 of Matthew, and from verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. In other words, they were fully prepared to meet the coming of the bridegroom. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for the lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterwards the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The door will be shut when Jesus comes back. Here's the final point. It's for me, it's for you tonight. Which side of that door will you be on? Let's pray. Lord, our gracious God, as again we offer to you our worship, we pray your forgiveness for anything we have said amiss or anything that we have done and not in accordance with your will or contrary to your truth. Lord, we acknowledge that even our best efforts in this world are tainted with sin, our thoughts as well as our offerings. And we give thanks as we present these to you that we know of the perfection of Jesus himself 
And we present these in his name and ask that you would receive us in his name and for his sake. Bless us then, we pray now, on this week we have entered. And graciously accompany your word again with the power of your spirit. And all we ask is for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, our concluding psalm is in Psalm 89. That's in the Scottish Psalter. Psalm 89 at uh, verse 15, singing to tune Newington. That's on page 345. O greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know. Brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. They in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly. And in thy righteousness shall they exalted be on high. And so on to verse 18, four stanzas to the tune Newington, O greatly blessed the people are. O greatly blessed the people are, a joyful son that know, in brightness of thy faith, O Lord, ever on shall go. go to the main door this evening. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.